0: My basic tagline is the virtue signaling part of ESG, the, there's, you know, good and bad energy or clean and dirty energy, we could do without all of that. All energy is good, there are different levels of carbon intensity, there's different levels of cost, there's different levels of time frames and capex involved, but all energy is good. We just need to figure out how to motivate less carbon intensive, less environmentally damaging forms of energy over time while we're trying to be affordable, reliable, and secure.
1: Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities, and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building Smarter Markets be the antidote?
2: Welcome back to a new year on Smarter Markets, I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at ABEX Technologies. Our guest today is Arjun Murthy, the former head of equity research on the energy sector at Goldman Sachs and the publisher of Superspiked on Substack. We'll be discussing some of the big issues facing energy investors in 2023. Hello, Arjun. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Dave, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me again. Absolutely. So glad to start the new year 2023 with you. And I really enjoyed reading your first super spiked article of the year this week. And you caught my attention with your statement that we are entering what you said is, unfortunately, what you will expect to be year three of the messy energy transition quagmire. And I wanted to start off today by asking you, you know, what do you mean by that?
0: You know, Dave, it's it's been quite a period here for energy markets. And I think why year three and why do we... So, we're in an environment where you look at traditional energy, which is still the overwhelming energy of the world, at least 80% of our primary energy, and we're out of essentially everything, spare capacity and OPEC, inventories, natural gas, deliverable capacity, what have you. Despite what are now two years of better returns on capital and much higher prices, You still have this confluence of everybody, traditional investors, new investors, climate-oriented people, the executive themselves saying, we don't want to spend on the old stuff, but it's 80% of our energy mix. There seems to be a notion that either because profitability was poor, so we don't trust the companies, or we're concerned or think that various climate solutions are going to result in a big shift in a short period of time of how we demand energy – you're just not seeing the spending. And so long as that is the case, I think we're going to be in a, a pretty challenged environment. It's, it's not a knock necessarily on the new stuff. I think it's more recognizing the stuff doesn't happen quickly. If you want to switch to more fuel efficient vehicles, if you can switch to EVs, if you want to have different forms of power generation or what have you, all these things take time measured in multiple, multiple, multiple decades and you need spending on all of it. You need spending on traditional energy, you need spending on new energy, and you need a whole host of policies that recognize those realities. And in the absence of that, I'll say it's perhaps fortunate if you're an investor in these things and you feel it's a bullish environment, but it is unfortunate for the world, make no mistake, to not have abundant energy. And I think that's why we use the term,
2: the unfortunately, I think we're going
0: to be in year three of this energy quagmire that we're in.
2: Yeah, and I wanted to dig into this reluctance to invest that you brought up because it seems to be so central. And of course, oil companies had a very profitable year last year, and that's caught a lot of investors' attention who may not have been paying much attention to the sector for a little while. But of course, you know we've had the Fed continuing to tighten, the economy slowing. And what's turned out to be an extremely warm winter period in Europe, which has really helped out the energy situation there, but it has put downward pressure on oil and natural gas prices. And I'm curious, you know, investors may be asking if this energy cycle is over already. And you've been doing this a long time, Arjun. Where do you think we are in this energy cycle?
0: I mean, Dave, my reflection on this is in my 30-year career, Every time energy rallies, no matter what the backdrop, it could be structurally bullish, structurally bearish, a seasonal rally, a cyclical rally. That is always the question. Isn't that like tech where people like love the product, get excited about it, and can see 15 or 20 years of perpetual growth and returns. There's always a worry with energy. I still think you have to take a step back and say, well, where are we in the broader cycle? And so after what was a 15-year profitability downturn. 2006 was the peak profitability for the sector, which I would note two years before the 08 price peak, maybe a full seven or eight years before the cycle kind of notionally ended, as most people would say in 2014. But it's been 15 years of down profitability. One or two years of better times is clearly not enough for either companies or investors to say, let's turn on the spigots again. I think you then add in this notion of, hey, there is uncertainty about the long-term demand. What is the pace of electric vehicles or fuel economy or sustainable fuels or whatever alternate forms of energy you want to mix in there? We don't know how quickly that we can all debate that these things might be slower or faster, but that long term demand uncertainty, the reality of 15 years of pretty down cycle profits, one year of better profitability has not been enough. I I will say one more thing, Dave. I, I get the frustration people sometimes have with political rhetoric, especially, say, here in the U.S., or this notion of VSG investors. And it's out there. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't make a difference. But when I think of why hasn't CapEx risen more, I'd say it's, in my opinion, overwhelmingly driven by this really challenging extended period of poor profitability we've had. And simply having one year of better returns is not enough. Now, is it two years, three years, or four years? Somewhere in there, I think, would be the debate. And you then mix in the points you mentioned, which is, what if we have if not a recession, but a weaker period in 2023 or a warm winter or what have you, all these kind of things, the inherent volatility is going to cause a delay in the capex response.
2: Yeah, I wanted to ask you that point because I really like the way that you've been characterizing the recent cycle of being, a, I think you call a super vol cycle as opposed to a super spike cycle? Because I think it's important in that you know you kind of see this underinvestment, lack of capacity, low inventory, and demand can fluctuate. You can have a warm winter, you can have a cold winter, you can have demand get destroyed, and that being prices down. But until you get that investment, you don't keep prices lower and more stable over the long term. So I'm curious, when you think about being in a super vol environment where prices are going to be moving around a lot more, does that discourage the investment we need or encourage it? What's the investor attitude towards that type of volatility?
0: I think it unquestionably discourages it. So I'd say the couple, I'll just say differences with the 2002 to 2014, what I've called the super spike era, is in, in that environment, there was not really uncertainty on the long-term demand trajectory. People might have debated in any given year, have prices risen too much? Or could we have a short-term recession or what the Fed is doing? But that basic relationship of population growth, economic growth leads to oil and gas demand growth. There was no questioning of that. And I, while I think the extreme question we're having right now is overdone, I for one think natural gas grows as long as one can see 20 you know. At least the next three decades. And and that's maybe as far out as anyone can go. But even oil demand, I think it's going to be very hard to kill oil demand. But while saying that, there's no question there is more of an uncertainty this go round than there was last time. We had China join the WTO. And while no one knew exactly at the moment they joined that it would lead to such an emerging market boom, as that boom progressed, you know, Goldman came out with the BRICS call, our friend Jim O'Neill, and yet a host of people say this is a really good economic event. No one is saying that now, right? So we're in this kind of really unique environment where you don't have spending for all the reasons we've articulated, but we also don't have that booming economic growth environment. So I think you'll keep butting up against demand destruction pricing, quote unquote. It's not a specific number, it can be different products at different times. So it was, as you know, Dave, last summer, five to $600 per barrel equivalent natural gas prices in Europe. It might be diesel prices, it might be gasoline prices another time. We sometimes simplify that total oil price, but it's not $100 a barrel or $200 or any specific number. It's going to vary. But when you hit that price, whatever it is, in whatever commodity it is, it then causes a period of economic weakness. You know, And without that sort of underlying Again, in the past, booming emerging market growth that drove us 20 years ago with that that type of backdrop, I think you're going to whip around from these much more bullish environments to also an environment where you back off, none of which is going to motivate new supply growth, which is what is needed, both traditional supply and new supply to get out of this quagmire, as I'm calling it.
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction between back when you had a secular support for demand in China and the BRICS versus now where we have this messy energy transition where it's more of like a secular move away from fossil fuels and oil and gas. But as you said, that move isn't going to be quick and it's not going to be easy. And I think there's a wider and wider recognition that the, that energy transition is going to take some time before we can move to widespread electrification powered by low carbon renewables. And I wanted to get your thoughts on how should investors be thinking about that secular impact of the energy transition on the traditional energy industry, the oil and gas industry?
0: Dave, I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of the crux of the issue. I think it's coming to terms with, first and foremost, we have to have abundant, available, affordable, reliable, secure energy for all, but we need to do that with as small of a climate and environmental footprint as possible. And I think people struggle with, if I am particularly focused, say, on the climate or environmental side, how do I get comfortable with the fact that we're probably going to need 20 to 30 years, at least, of oil and gas investments to continue? We're going to need new pipelines. We're going to need new LNG facilities. And how do you do that in a way where you're still lowering the carbon intensity, in the case of natural gas? I would say, de facto eliminating, or at least near zero method, I think is the right phrasing type of emissions. How do you do that in as responsible a manner as possible? And you're going to have to wrap your arms around the idea that these things are not quick and easy. I think one of the big things we're going to learn in 2023 is the hockey stick EV growth forecasts are going to prove challenging. I am personally an EV bull, meaning I think EV sales are going to grow every year. I've driven happily an electric vehicle for the last seven years and will personally have no intention of ever buying an ICE vehicle again. But as I've said before, I'm also very fortunate to have had a career on Wall Street. I live in a suburban single-family home with a heated garage that makes owning that Tesla both affordable for me and manageable in terms of uh, being able to charge at home and these kind of things. And so you get into things like cobalt, you get into things like lithium, you get into all the sort of metals and mining that... Robert Friedland and you and Josh have talked about in prior podcasts. These are all huge issues and they're they're solvable, but they're not solvable in five years or 10 years. They're solvable in multiple decades. You know, so the idea that we're going to have these hockey stick EV growth forecasts, I push back hard. I think some of the correction we're seeing in Tesla stock is an example. Some of the short-term kind of thing with higher Fed rates, but I think a larger part of it is going to be the idea that, Yes, their sales may still grow, but the idea that it's going to lead to some major displacement of oil demand within 10 or 15 years, I think that's the part we're going to get some pragmatism on. And pragmatism would be the, the word of the year. I would hope that from both investors, from policymakers, and from just general people, we'll see more of that in 2023.
2: Yeah, and I wanted to talk to you a bit about that pragmatism on the government side, because we really can't talk about the energy transition without talking about the influence of government policy. And, you know, we've seen a lot of new policy coming out of Europe, coming out of the U.S. And I was curious, where do you think we are currently in terms of the government's attitude and policy towards the energy industry?
0: Well, I'll caveat this by saying we're starting from a really low bar in terms of basic understanding of energy and frankly, any sense of pragmatism from anybody. So someone like myself might find it easy to pick on what we would call progressive Democrats in here. But the sort of the opposite side what we're getting from Republicans, we actually need ideas. We don't just need, let's mock solar and wind and make fun of it. Let's actually, what are the ideas that if you want to have, say, call it conservative climate principles, what are they? Who articulates these? Why don't we hear anything about it? So I'd say all sides, or at least in this case, both sides in the U.S. context are kind of to blame for what I think is, really poor narrative in and around energy. I mean, so again, the goals are simple. We need affordable, reliable, secure energy with as small of an environmental and climate footprint as possible. And where I gain some optimism, I'll just have to be conscious of Chatham House Rules from some of the meetings I've been in is I've seen a shift from folks either in or were recently in or associated with, let's just call it the left side of the aisle in the United States, where behind closed doors, you will hear phrases like, Well, of course, everyone knows you can't do 100% renewables and you're going to need nuclear power and we're going to need natural gas. I I say, time out. Hey, (laughs) if that's so obvious, how about articulating that? Can I vote for you if if it's such an obvious statement? But of course, the politics keep them from saying that. And in the same time, I have been in meetings with folks, Well, let's just say it's right of center affiliated with either Congress or or maybe folks in and around prior or perhaps future administrations with also what what are kind of interesting ideas, again, maybe for more markets or a conservative-oriented side, but you don't hear those expressed as much publicly. So there's a reticence to speak publicly about this, but I do take some comfort that I've been in enough meetings, and it's really been, I'd say, over the last three months or so, that there's just been a noticeable change. I hate to say it's towards the middle, because that always sounds like compromise. What I'd say is it's away from the extremes, towards what I'm going to call what i think are healthier and more realistic solutions with realistic timeframes attached to them as well but it's that's off a really low bar i don't want to create a sense of over optimism here any signs of progress are good signs
2: yeah and i'd love to follow up with that because you know on smarter markets we're always trying to look at ways to carve out that pragmatic middle ground and find people that are interested in focusing on the problems so when i hear you mention that there seems to be this shift however subtle Towards a more reasonable, or at least being able to to have a conversation with one another, I'm curious. Like, do you have a sense of what has triggered that? What's led to that movement towards being a little bit more pragmatic? I mean,
0: I think we've come out of our dream world of 14 years of for free money, right? And, and we're seeing kind of the, the downsides of that. and The debate on what is correct Fed policies for, I'm sure, a a different group of podcast participants than you and I, but that notion of sort of free money, growth to the moon, irrespective of profits, if we're looking at some of the unprofitable tech companies, as they've called, I think the reality of the Russia-Ukraine conflict and what that means for energy security, I think the mistakes Europe has made in terms of being overly reliant on Russia in particular, uh, prematurely retiring nukes. Again, the the place where I'm least optimistic there's been some policy progress is actually Europe. I'm, Dave, American, as as you are, and, and so clearly have sort of an American's perspective on this. But I still find it shocking that Europe's going through what it's going through. And while I know Germany has talked about delaying the shutdown of some nukes and so forth... There still seems to be a lot of lack of pragmatism there. So I will say in my political commentary, at least based on meetings I have directly attended, I feel more optimistic that, again, relative to a low bar, there's a little bit more progress in the U.S. I think Europe's going to have to get their arms around where they are today. And some of the things that they're talking about and counting on, I mean, it's great to talk about hydrogen. It's great to talk about a whole sorts of things. but. I think you have to be realistic. Are we talking 50 years here? Are you sure you want to count on this for the next five or 10 years? Whatever these various options are, we're going to need a whole bunch of traditional stuff, hopefully done in a more efficient manner, hopefully done with less methane emissions, what have you. I think while we're waiting for the new stuff to start to come, and we're going to also need nuclear to be part of this conversation.
2: Yeah. And when you look at things like, say, US policy in particular... Where you see it get, you know, moving from a low bar towards more reasonable. And we've had, of course, the you know, the Inflation Reduction Act went through, lots of supports for newer forms of energy. If you think about the energy industry broadly, do you see the government at this point in the US as potentially a positive for investing in that sector or more of a risk? You know, Dave, this is where I think folks that are writer center are gonna have to
0: figure out what is the role for government. So One can be for limited government. Limited government does not mean no government and anarchy. And things like negative externalities related to the environment, these are things classically that markets, quote unquote, don't solve. So I am someone who is more sympathetic towards let's try and figure out ways for private capital and private enterprise and markets to solve this stuff but they cannot solve everything and i think what are the rules that should be in place what is the areas that we do need government help and support things like fuel economy rules if it is a goal to decrease our dependent on gasoline it's unclear to me why both republicans and democrats in the us context are willing to exempt a whole bunch of heavier less fuel efficient cars with things like fuel economy and that again that's a way to take a chunk out of oil demand if you really wanted to rather than miss our fuel economy targets by 95%, as has generally been the case over the last 25 years, you get a stricter rules. And that's gonna require governments to step up there. Things like a price on carbon, as an example, it's either gonna be labeled as a tax, and therefore the right of center doesn't like it, or an excuse to allow fossil fuel production, quote unquote, which is why the left doesn't like it. We got bipartisan support to not do anything. That's great, right? So I think both sides are gonna have to figure out what is the role. And so the role might be, that if you're right to center, we're going to need some amount of rules and regulation on some of this stuff. Methane is a clear and obvious place where if the companies are not going to voluntarily, and I'm talking about all the companies, not just the large ones that I think have made good faith promises, but all the mid and smaller size companies, if they're not going to proactively deal with their methane emissions, then that is some place where you'd say some sort of rule is required. And I think what are the examples of that? Um, I think when you go to the left, The idea that they should just be against every oil and gas pipeline because it's yesterday's issue and we need a future, it's not realistic. You can hate oil companies and gas companies all you want. You can hate fossil fuels all you want. But it must be better that it comes from the US and Canada than from, and again, apologies, Dave, I'll say this as an American, from Russia or Iran, uh, if these are our choices, or at least some of the choices. So no matter how anti-fossil fuel you are as environmentalists, I would still think it should be stopped elsewhere before it stopped here. And that these are just two examples or a few examples of where I think both sides need to adjust how they think about things.
2: Yeah, and in addition to, you know, those sorts of conversations within government circles, of course, you know, I also want to talk a bit about the influence of investor behavior notably through ESG investing, looking outside pure financial returns. You know, we've seen a lot of pullback in investing in the energy sector for ESG concerns in particular A big move by European financial companies to pull back from financing in the oil and gas sector. And where do you think we are at in terms of ESG investing's influence on the energy industry? And is what we mean by ESG investing evolving?
0: It's a great and actually very broad question and topic. So I would say, my basic tagline is the virtue signaling part of ESG. The, there's you know good and bad energy or clean and dirty energy. We could do without all of that. All energy is good. There are different levels of carbon intensity. There's different levels of cost. There's different levels of time frames and CapEx involved. But all energy is good. We just need to figure out how to motivate less carbon intensive, uh, less environmentally damaging forms of energy over time while we're trying to be affordable, reliable, and secure. Let me get to the European financials. So, we've had Munich Re, the reinsurance company, and HSBC, the bank, both announce to be consistent with climate objectives, the IEA's net zero report. They're going to stop, quote unquote, financing oil and gas starting in 2023. And I believe it's related to new CapEx in, in both their cases. You know, I find these announcements to be really deeply disturbing, completely unhelpful. They're private companies. They're certainly entitled to do what they think is best. And I think if they were doing it because they weren't making money in these areas, I could say, as an investor, that might make sense. But when they're specifically citing climate, who is Munich Re and HSBC financing? Are they financing Aza, the Venezuelan oil company? Are they, are they financing Russian oil or Iranian oil? Or are they most likely financing Western companies? The war on fossil fuel supply, someone else has made the comment analogous to the war on drugs. I don't understand the relationship between singly killing fossil fuel supply, which is what these types of things do, and how that's going to impact demand. So are they still doing auto loans or or other loans that de facto use energy that is, of course, 80% fossil? So I could go on a long time about this. I would just say that to me, it is not climate friendly. It is not going to lower emissions. It is not helpful to citizens of the world to have major financial institutions stop financing the energy that the world heavily depends on. I think when you get to the investor base, there it is, it is a really complex and diverse issue. And the same way, I don't think anyone could generically say hedge funds, all hedge funds are good or bad, or all pension funds are good or bad, or, all, or all, anything is good or bad. I think that's true for the ESG topic. So no one could dispute that these companies need governance. And that maybe if every company had a well IRR, drill baby drill model in the 2015 time period and it didn't work, maybe some diversity of at least thought process might have helped come up with at least one or two different strategies amongst that group of companies. And I think the idea that companies should not adhere to health, safety, and the, like, so like the core concepts of ESG, of course, it's needed in, I think, every company. And I think as an investor, you can make an effort to discern that. Do I have confidences management or not? I think where I push back on energy is when it starts getting to the moral argument of this is good or this is bad, and I want to be on the side of good, and I want to be against the side of bad, and somehow, quote, clean energy is good, not that there's any such thing, and that fossil fuels are, quote, unquote, dirty and therefore bad. And so I'm calling it ESG 2.0. Again, the fundamental factors of ESG, I think, are critical to the success of any company. But I think what we'd like to get away from is these sort of moralistic labels. There is no such thing as green and clean. It's bad words. Words matter. All energy has elements of clean and dirty. All energy has positive and negative externalities. There's no forced labor, I'll try and be somewhat constrained here, going on with a lot of traditional loss of like you see, for example, in cobalt and other areas. So forced labor um, for the solar panels with the Uyghurs, these are some of the, the examples all energy has its positives and negative externalities. And I think I'd rather switch the, the semantics if we could to that type of language.
2: Yeah. And as you talk about you know, ESG 2.0 and evolving beyond virtue signaling, one thing that I've been waiting to see, uh, maybe you can tell me if, if we're getting down that path, is when do the energy companies be seen and become more allies in the effort instead of being seen as adversaries? Because When I look at the commodity sector, the energy industry, one thing that hits you right in the face is just the sheer scale of it, the millions and millions of barrels of oil consumed every day, the immense quantities of gas, the megawatts of power. And I don't see how we do something as big as transition off of fossil fuels and into new energy forms without the skills, the talents, the engineering know-how, the infrastructure that Only exist inside the big energy and mining companies. So I'm curious, like, when do they become seen as a resource and an ally in this transition as opposed to the adversary?
0: I think there's a whole host of things that need to happen. I mean, first and foremost, it's just a fundamental understanding of how basic energy is to everything. You know, I think when people talk about, for example, in tech, the cloud if you don't really think about it it's really just energy powering data servers around the world and your data is not stored on your local computer it's stored in these various physical locations right the whole world is physical that i labeled it metaverse meets universe it was a play on a babylon bee joke of a similar title but the idea that everything in the world is ultimately physical and it ultimately all requires energy and so i think that just sort of basic understanding that energy is absolutely critical and That's full stop, first stop, the entire point of it. No one at the end of the day actually cares where their energy comes from. They simply care that it's available when they need it. I think the idea then of why do we use energy? Why do we use crude oil? We don't use it because we love crude oil. And most people will say they don't love crude oil-based oil and gas companies. It's because it is there. It is available. It is affordable. It is scalable. And again, I think there's a little bit of an idea that somehow it is big oil or someone else holding back a transition. Look, companies are always going to fight for their turf. That's true in every single sector. But I I think the idea of how much different metals do you need to really ramp up battery capacity? Are those going to be affordable for the mass population? Like, There's just so many questions on all these different areas of new energy technologies. I think we need to become a lot more realistic about what these timeframes are. When people talk about, as an example solar being the cheapest form of energy. Well, if we're only counting the variable cost when the sun is shining, which is a zero cost kind of variable cost, then yes, it's the cheapest. But if it's not shining all the time and you need backup, or you need storage, or you've got other grid investments that you need, or that the capacity utilizations are low. So I think folks on that side of the aisle or that side of the argument need to understand nothing is inherently the cheapest, right? And so this all of this conversation that just gets muddled into ideology, well, solar and wind are cheaper, so we should only do that, which is absolutely not true. On the flip side, if you're an oil and gas person to say, well, all the solar and wind is just a bunch of nonsense, that's also not true. And it doesn't mean there's nothing that should be done on, on the traditional side as well. And so whether it starts with semantics, whether it starts with a basic understanding of energy, you know, I think these are all the steps that are going to have to be taken to get to a healthier conversation going forward.
2: And you have lots of great conversations with all sorts of investors in the energy industry and oil and gas. And I was curious, you know, what do you think that investors are looking for when evaluating investing in the energy industry today? And maybe are there different groups of investors that are looking for different things?
0: I mean, I've I've always thought it all boils down to profits. So if you make money, people will will come back to your sector. And if you lose money, they're going to avoid you. And I've always thought from an investor standpoint that is the be-all and end-all. Yes, there's going to be a small group of people on an ideological spectrum who'll say, I will not invest in this on some moral grounds, if that's their view, and that that's fine. But I've always thought the thing plaguing traditional energy investing most has been what, again, was a 15-year profitability downturn, and what is now two years of better returns, of which the first year simply kind of got us back to even. And so we've now had one good year of what let's just call it above historic normal type profitability levels. And so that... Has sparked interest in the sector. The traditional energy sector in the U.S. has gone from two percent of the S&P at its October 2020 lows to a little over five percent today. It's it's been a good period at a time that the rest of the market has has faced some challenges, but that's still much a much lower weighting than historically has been. Ten to fifteen percent has been more the traditional energy weighting. So it's still a sign that while investors have come back, they still don't quite trust the companies yet to spend the money wisely. They still don't quite trust. What the long-term demand outlook may or may not be, and all the volatility points we started with, and so again, what do investors want? I think they want profits first and foremost. But I think it's reasonable to say, if you're an investor in traditional energy, what is my outlook for oil demand? Like Arjun, you might have the view that fuel economy is disappointing, and that EVs are going to take longer because, you know, it's going it, to we're going to have to mine all these different metals and so forth, and it's not going to be as quick and easy as just expanding in the luxury vehicle market as Tesla has done. That might be my view. And someone else might have a different view say, no, those battery costs are going to continue to come down. We're going to crack the code on cobalt mining and lithium mining, and we're going to have the IRA and permitting reform and all these things. It's a reasonable thing to debate. So I think investors will debate and discuss all these things, but it is still going to boil down to do I believe this group of companies or this specific company is going to be profitable going forward? And I think that is always and should always be the driving metric for investors. As part of that, does the company have good governance? You know, as part of that, do they treat their employees well? If they don't treat their employees well, then do I have to worry that at some point they could have an exodus of high quality employees? And so like, I think you factor in those ESG factors as you're considering the long-term profitability of the company, but I've never thought of it as a separate scorecard or a separate metric. It is ultimately going to be the profits and the sustainability of those profits that matter most.
2: And and what are some of the things you look for as like a you know, when you're thinking about, is this going to be profitable? Is this company going to be profitable or not? Are there certain uh, things you, you look for for your, your first pass?
0: I mean, I, I think it's always trying to understand and have a view on what are going to be the future low-cost resources. It's, it's Lee Raymond's methodology from when his time is Exxon, which was his line was always, I have no idea. We have no idea where all prices are going to go. We're always going to try invest in the future low-cost projects. And that, that is that is the trick. You know, I can't say that I personally recognize because I didn't that the Permian Basin which be, would be such a sizable resource. So it's not always a question of trying to perfectly guess these things in advance, but as it becomes evident that the Permian Basin is starting to expand, that then may cause you to call into question a deep water explorer as an example. And, and the similar analysis applies to incorporating new energy. Do I think? hydrogen or electric vehicles or solar or wind or whatever the various competing things may be, how do I think they're going to stack up? Do I run the risk of all these oil fields getting displaced by future opportunities to provide an equivalent energy resource to people? And again, I come out on the side that I think oil and natural gas overall, not in every location, but overall, is going to still be quite competitive. And therefore, that plus what I think will be not as low a cost Technology progress in some of the newer areas, as I think some people may be forecast, or at least it's not a straight line down. So yes, we've made a lot of progress in lowering the cost of batteries that go into electric vehicles, but maybe those costs are starting to level out. Maybe we need next generation battery technology. What's the timing of that? What's the timing of solid state batteries, as an example? Can you really replace cobalt with some other product that then eliminates that cobalt mining issue? These are all huge questions that will play into: Do I want to invest in oil and gas? Do I want to invest in new stuff? or some mixture of of all of the above. But these are all going to be commodities. It will always, I think, boil down to the future sizable low-cost resources is what you're trying to go after.
2: That's great. Now, I want to pick your mind a little bit more because when we talk about these cycles, you know, cycles can be 10, 15 years, and you put that in the perspective of a person's career. In the finance industry, you start to realize that when you get these upcycles again, often you know there aren't people around who have been used to looking at these sectors that have fallen out of favor. So you know might be a lot of people who know how to evaluate tech companies right now because that's been a pretty <coughs> profitable thing to do over the past decade, but maybe not so much you know evaluating energy companies. And so as people get interested in the space again, uh, you know if you have someone who's new to investing in energy companies. What would your advice be for how to begin thinking about investing in this space,
0: David? It, it's really been a sea change shift in terms of who has been looking at the traditional energy sector, and even at the start of my career in the early '90s, that was a period where the sector was generally out of favor, and there was the boom in the '70s, the bust in 1986, and I started in '92. But energy, at least at that point in time, was still in the eight nine percent of the S and P type range, and so you still had a robust en- grouping of senior and newer analysts covering the sector. I was a newer analyst at the time. That's not the case today. Again, after a 15-year downturn, which coincided with a 15-year period of free money and growth is all that matters and tech is all that matters, and you're down to 2% of the S&P instead of 8% of the S&P, there's been a real elimination of, I think, people who understand energy, especially traditional energy, and for that matter, even newer energies. I think all these areas are lacking in just people who, who know about these things. You know, one of the reasons I've been able to have any sort of growth in my Substack, which you mentioned, I think has been people are looking for people who've been around the block a few times. And so, you know, Dave, you used to be one of my favorite analysts to follow. And I do hope uh, as part of your ABACS roles, you will start writing again publicly because the world does need people like you to be sharing their views publicly. I took it upon myself. I do this for fun, I do it for networking, but I do do it also in part for educational purposes as well. You know, And so I, I think there's a dearth of people looking at the sector right now. And, and you can start by reading books like The Great Dan Yergin and The Prize and so forth to understand the history. I recommend reading Vaclav Smeal, the Canadian professor who has had a number of great books in Energy, Numbers Don't Lie, Energy and Civilization. And there's a newer book that he's got out as well. There's those types of resources. I think some of the social media, the Twitter, the Substack, there's a lot of great people on these platforms. So while it gets a, a negative connotation social media for some of the downsides i think if you learn to harness it and to eliminate the kind of the negative voices and the people who are just out there to cause trouble and curate who you follow try not to make it an echo chamber there's just a ton of great content today so i don't think you have to cover the sector for 30 years. But I do recommend going through the history. It is an older industry. uh, All of energy is. It's been around for 150 years. And I think people do need to understand these historical lessons. And I always say, start with an understanding of the profitability cycles and how they change and what causes them to change and how which resources are in favor and out of favor, how that changes, because it gets to that notion of what is going to be at the low end of the cost curve and how that shifts over time. And you can look at traditional energy Newer energy is absolutely part of that mix. I should absolutely be concerned when I look at the outlook for oil demand or or let's just take natural gas demand. There are plenty of ways to do power generation. So if that is going to be a future growth area, in my opinion, then I should be concerned or not concerned, but at least understanding how can solar and wind undercut that or not. Will we have a nuclear Marshall Plan, if not in the United States, at least in other parts of the world, that could eliminate natural gas demand growth down the road or not? Uh, how do the geopolitics play into supply? It's not always that the lowest cost form of supply gets developed if they're in a geopolitically challenged place. Venezuela comes to mind. That could be a really sizable, low cost oil resource. But very sadly, due to self-inflicted, in my opinion, government wounds, uh, that oil has been staying in the ground. and so. It's what makes this sector interesting to cover as an analyst. There's just so many cross-currents, geopolitics. But there is no sector more important to the world than energy. Without energy, you don't have anything. Yes, you need to drink water and eat or you're not alive. But right after that, right after drinking water and eating, comes energy. Because without energy, you don't have tech. You don't have cars. You don't have an economy. You don't have anything. Which is why, to get back to where we started... This idea that we should label some of it good and some of it bad and some of it clean and some of it dirty and, and all these sort of moralistic labels, it's all good, but it can all also be improved. All energy is good, but all of it can be improved. And let's try and get to focus on the types of energy that are lower cost and affordable, but that also can help us decarbonize and have a smaller environmental footprint.
2: Thanks again to Arjun Murthy the former head of equity research on the energy sector at Goldman Sachs and the publisher of SuperSpiked on Substack. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week for our new series, A Smarter Way, where we'll be discussing smarter ways to address some of the ongoing problems in policy, media, investing and markets. Our first guest will be Craig Perron, Professor of Finance and Energy Markets Director of the Global Energy Management Institute at the Bauer College of Business at the University of Houston. We'll be discussing the new European cap on natural gas prices and smarter ways to deal with energy shortages and high energy prices. We hope you'll join us.
1: This episode was brought to you in part by Abax Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining and transportation of commodities across the globe. With markets for LNG, battery metals and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability, Abax Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees, and producer, ABEX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.